It's the 17th chapter of the book of John. One of the most important chapters, maybe in that entire gospel, maybe in the entire New Testament. If you haven't read it, I um, want you to go home this week and read it because it is right there. It's Jesus' last will and testament. If you want to know Jesus' heart for the world and Jesus' heart for His church and Jesus' heart for you, you, all you have to do is read the 17th chapter of John. It is right there. It's in that upper room. Imagine what we do here on Monday, Thursday with Jesus and all of those disciples, with those men gathered around Him, with those people that He loved and cared for the most. Here it is, the 17th chapter of John, and Jesus knows that in just a day He's not going to be with them anymore. And so He prays for them. He prays for them. And it is the most heartfelt prayer that you'll find in all of the New Testament. And in it, Jesus pours His heart out to God on behalf of all of us. It's Jesus' last will and testament. Hear how it begins. Let's see if I get this here. Help me out, Julie. Give me a bump. Thanks. Here's how it starts. It said, After Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your, son, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted Him authority over all people, that he, may, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Did you catch it? Verse 3. The secret to life. Jesus lays it all out there. He says, now this is what life is all about. This is eternal life. Verse 3, it's right there that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life. To know God and to make God known. To know God's love and to make God's love known. To know God. It's interesting, in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, there are two Greek words that can be used for the, um, to, to what it means to know something or to know someone. There are two different words. The first is oida, O-I-D-A. And that means to know something intellectually. To understand the facts and the figures, the dates and the times, so that someone could pass a written exam. That is not the word Jesus uses here. Jesus isn't talking about simple head Knowledge. When he says to know God and to know Christ, it isn't to know all the dates and facts. It isn't to just know all the, um, all the right answers to all the right questions. That's not the kind of know he's talking about. Jesus uses a different word, and it's one of the most rich and deep words in the entire New Testament. When Jesus says he wants us to know him, the Greek word there is gnosko. Gnosko. I want you to know me. And I want you to 
know God. It's a fullness. It's a deep kind of knowing. It's the only kind of knowing you can get if you know somebody in a personal, personal way. Jesus says the secret to life is to know God and to make God's love known. You know, you can know a lot about somebody, but not know a thing about them. As a Green Bay Packer fan, I know just about everything there is to know about Brett Favre. I know that Brett Favre was born on October 10th, 1969 in Gulliport, Mississippi. I knew that he grew up in Lynn, Kiln, Mississippi. I know that he has Choctaw Native American in him. I know that he attended Hancock North Central High School where he took them to three consecutive state championships running a wishbone offense. I know that he went on to play at Southern Mississippi where he went on to then become the 33rd pick of the 1991 draft by the Atlanta Falcons. And then in 1992, a moment only second to the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, He was traded from the Atlanta Falcons to the Green Bay Packers. A moment where time literally stood still. And all of history changes in that for Packer fans. I know that he won three consecutive league MVP awards, 11 consecutive Pro Bowl appearances. He started 285 consecutive games. He's thrown 479 touchdown passes, 69,329 passing yards. I know that he married Dina Tynes on July 14th, 1996, two weeks before I married Bridget. And that's why he couldn't be at our wedding. (laughs) And it's not because we didn't ask. And maybe the restraining order had something to do with it. But that's, that's another sermon for another day. He has two daughters, Brittany and Braley. He made a cameo appearance in the 1998 romantic comedy, There's Something About Mary. He owns and operates the Brett Favre Steakhouse in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I know all this stuff about Brett Favre, but I don't know Brett Favre. And he don't know me. Jesus says the secret of life is not to know all this stuff about God. Not to know all this stuff about Jesus, but to know Him and to make His love known. Jesus is clear. If you want to know God, know Me. For I've been sent to reveal God's love to you so that you can know it in a personal way through through the person that I am. In word, in deed, in action, you can become to know who Jesus is. And by knowing Jesus, you can know who God is. And then you have tapped into the reality of eternal life. That's what Jesus begins His prayer with. Will they know God? Will they make God's love known? He goes on to pray for His church. Pray for His disciples. In there, He pours it out and He says to God, God, I'm not going to be here much longer, but they... They will remain in the world. And it's through them that the love that I've made known to them that they will make known to the world. Jesus literally hands the baton to those disciples. 
and says, I'm not going to be here anymore to show the world what God looks like and how God's love can be experienced. I've now handed that baton to you. And then in verse 11, he prays this very powerful verse. Julie, will you put up for me? He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they will still be in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name and the name you gave me so that they may be one. So that they may be one as we are one. How will the world know God's love when God's Son is no longer with us? They'll know it when they look at us and they can see that we are one. That we are one. Through His disciples, the world will know of God's love for the world. What a responsibility that has been handed to and passed on to us. That when people see us, how we live together and how we act together and how we love and how we forgive and how we fight together, they will say that's what God looks like. It's not that we're going to be perfect. It's just that when we have disagreements, we know how to make it right at the end of the day. God is a God of infinite second chances and new beginnings. God says when they look at you, will they see the oneness of who Jesus and I are. That's what He should see when you see the world. Then he goes on to pray for you and me. 2,000 years ago, in that upper room, Jesus didn't just pray for those 12 people. Jesus prayed for you and I who are sitting here 2,000 years later. He prayed for every person between that time and now and until the time of His coming again in that upper room. Jesus prayed for us all and here is what He prayed. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Again, that all of them might be one. Father, just as as you are in me and I am in you. 2,000 years ago, at the moment before his death, Jesus prayed for you and for me. That we too might be a part of that Oneness in Christ. That we might be a part of that. That we would be His witnesses. So if He was praying for us, what was it that He prayed? You see it here. I pray also for those who will believe in Me through Your message. That all of them might be one. Just as You are in Me and I am in You. May this also be for us in the world that believe that they have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have also loved me. Three times in two verses, Jesus prayed for us that we would be one. That we would be unity. Jesus' prayer for His church is that when the world saw them, they would see them united as people, united in a common spirit, in a common world. 
Jesus prayed that they would be one, that all those who claim to be Christian would be one, and all means all. All means all. That all people would find unity in Christ. Why this emphasis on unity? Jesus says that is how the world will know. That I am who I say I am. That I am the Savior of the world. Think about it. For only the true Messiah, only the true Prince of Peace, can unite men and women together of every trace, every race, every tribe, every tongue, every language. Only the true God who loves the world can bring together people who the world wants to keep segregated and keep separated. On the night before He died, Jesus gave us the most effective means for reaching the world with the Gospel. We've been talking a lot about that in our visioning committees and all of our meetings. What are we going to do to reach the neighborhood around us? And in that prayer in that upper room, Jesus tells us what is going to work in the world around us. And He said it's not to write books. It's not to bring in flashy preachers. It's not to put fish emblems on our car. It's not through mega churches built for only narrow segments of the population. It's not to be seeker sensitive or postmodern or emergent or purpose driven, whatever else is on it. Jesus says the world will know when they look at me if it is a place where they see all God's children, regardless of race, regardless of economic status, are welcome in that place. And in that place, they are one. That's how the world will know. And if the church looks like that, you can't keep people out of it. Because that's what the world is hungry for. And that is what the world is looking for. Is that what they see when they look at us? You know what the defining characteristic of the early church was? The first church after the resurrection of Jesus? There was one thing that made them stand out from the rest of the world around them. And that one thing that defined the first church in this world was its radical racial inclusiveness and its economic inclusiveness. They included people that the world around them simply would not include. In the early church, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks came together in worship, came together in fellowship, came together in friendship in a way that around the world around them simply had never experienced before. And it was absolutely shocking that people of the world were arch enemies and mortal enemies suddenly found friendship and unity in Christ. Rich and poor, people who lived in opposite ends of the world suddenly found unity in Christ. That's what the new church looked like. That's what shocked the world. That's why it grew so fast so early. Is people wanted to be a part of that. If that's who this Christ is, a God who loves all the world, And all of His children can be in all of that place together. Christianity was not a new religion. It was a new way of being in the world. A way of being where there was no room for racial or economic prejudice. I pray that my people will be one. Will be one. 
So that when the world sees them, they will know that I am truly the God who loves the world because when they gather, all of my children are able to be present in that place. If God is the God of all, and if Jesus is the Savior of the world, then when His people get together, it is supposed to look like the world that He's trying to save. So the question is, why is that so hard for the American church? Why have we failed so miserably at that? Catch this statistic. Jesus, the church who claims Jesus' name, we prayed that His people would be one. 92% of American churches are monoracial. 92%. 97% of Protestant churches like us are monoracial. 2.5% of Protestant churches look like the church Jesus prayed for. Or like the first church that came into being when Jesus was first there. It begs the question. I don't have the answer to it. I put it out on Facebook last night to see if somebody else could answer it for me. It begs the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? Now we've been talking a lot about hospitality over these last couple weeks. And this scripture hit me like a ton of bricks. Because it reminded me that hospitality isn't about gimmicks. Yeah, we're going to give out mugs, and we're going to give out bread, and we're going to have our cards, but at the end of the day, it better not be just about gimmicks. It's not about just being nice to people. It's not just about wearing your name tag. It's not just about making sure that your grass is cut and that the clutter is put away, although those things will help. At the end of the day, the most important act of hospitality is, is when people walk through the doors of your church, do they know that they can belong? Do they know that we are one? Do they know that there's a place for everyone, regardless of their racial background, regardless of their economic status? Can this be a place where all God's children worship together when they see us? Will they see that oneness? Friends, the church is supposed to be the one place in the world where you should be able to walk in no matter where you come from, and people ought to be glad to see you. It's supposed to be the one place in the world where that is possible. I know we tell this story way too much, but it dawned on me this week why we tell it so much. You've heard the story here time and time again that Lois Johnson, when she came to visit this church, she met Jane Bolander in the parking lot. In the eyes of the world, Jane and Lois are supposed to be suspicious of each other. You want to know what the church looks like? It looks like that. And I imagine that's why Lois came back the next week. Not because we had the best programs, not because we had the best choir, and not because we had everything right, but because she knew that this was a place where Jesus was real because Jane welcomed her in and the moment before she walked through the door. And that's why she came back. And that's why she hasn't been afraid to invite any of her neighbors and friends to come to this church. It's because that's what the church looks like. And if that's what the church looks like, then you can't keep people away from it. That is the evangelism that 
we are talking about. That is what hospitality is. That's the clutter we got to get out of the living room, is those things of the world that get in our way. Because it is easy to welcome people who look like you and come from places that look like you. And that's why 92% of the churches in America look like that. Because it's easy. But Jesus prayed that we would be different. That when people looked at the church of Jesus Christ, they would see that oneness. And that's the hospitality we're talking about here at Redford Aldersgate. And friends, I believe if there's a church that has a chance to be it, it is this church. I believe it is this church. And I believe that we're in the neighborhood, in the community, that can be the church Jesus prayed for when He prayed for us on that last night. We can be that church. It's that kind of hospitality that God is asking us to be, to be different than 90% of the churches in this country. We're going to do all those other things, but how we're going to grow is by looking like the church Jesus prayed for. If it's the God who saved the world, then when they see us, may they see the world. May they see the community in which we live in and be about. I tried to think for a moment how I learned all this stuff. It's Mother's Day, you know. I, uh, I grew up in a family of, uh, of good old boys where my uh, visits to my uh, grandfather, grandparents' house was filled with uh, my grandfathers and uncles telling jokes. I shouldn't be told. Using words that were hurtful and derogatory. But let me tell you, in my house, not in front of my mother, no way. I grew up in uh, northern Wisconsin, a little town called Rhinelander, one African-American kid in the entire community. His name was Judson Steele. Don't ask me why, but some reason my mom was the one who had a home daycare, and that's the home daycare Judson Steele went to. Never thought it was a big deal. Didn't think she was making a statement. In my community of northern Wisconsin, the racism there is around the issues of Native people. It splits that community in half. And the ugly things that are said blow me away. In our neighborhood, we had a Native family. We had a young boy named Charlie. Not sure why, but Charlie was always welcome in our house. Always a place for Charlie to sit at the table. And when my mom died, Charlie wrote us a letter from prison saying, Your mom... Your mom was the real deal. On Mother's Day, I tried to figure out where I learned something about this oneness. I learned it from her. And now after studying this gospel, I figured out where she learned it too. She came to know the Jesus who prayed that his church would be one. Friends, May we be that church too. Amen.